You're listening to Rock Solid People, a podcast by Max King. The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Welcome to Rock Solid People. Today, I'm very excited to have Debbie Seldon with us. Debbie has been working with children, adolescents, and families for the past 12 years, specializing in working with trauma and sexual abuse survivors across various cultural groups and religious backgrounds with the aim of breaking the abuse cycle. Previously, Debbie worked in Western Sydney as a child sexual assault counselor and also in a private practice, Ladybug Consulting in Bondi Junction. At Ladybug, Debbie works from a holistic approach and uses an indirect client-centered process that follows the individual's lead. When needed, she will direct the session using a variety of directed play approaches, expressive therapy approaches, and or talk therapy. In 2014, Debbie went on to create Treehouse Innovative Families, a therapeutic residential out-of-home care program for children and young people who have experienced trauma, neglect, and abuse. Welcome to Rock Solid People, Debbie Selden. Thank you for having me. There's a lot to unpick in that, but uh, <laughs> I'd like to, if we don't mind, start. And it's piqued my interest when we met in Alstonville a couple of months ago. You had mentioned that you had a background in aid work and you were overseas. And I'd like to just, if I can, just hear some of your experiences or the story. How did you get into that? Where have you been? Uh, what are some of the things that you've seen? And is that some of the, uh, what, what you saw overseas, is that what's led you to where you are today? Uh, absolutely. I don't think you come back the same person that you left after doing emergency response work. So I spent, I think, almost two years in Pakistan did the emergency response for the earthquake in the um, northwest frontier province, I think it was. I think they've renamed that province, to be honest. So that was pretty intense. And then went across to Uganda, worked up in um, the Lira area in Uganda, crossed to, gosh, where did I go after that? I've got to go back in world emergencies in my head. Spent some time in <laughs> Darfur in Sudan, which was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life heartbreaking experience and then I spent some time in Indonesia as well in the um in Sumatra so I think it was, about- uh, was that after the floods or the the tsunami uh the earthquake the earthquake yeah uh and so I I, I, I mean I don't want to to just be to be glib and to, to to pass over any of these, but I, I'm keen to hear uh, Darfur. Uh, it's the sort of one that I think you mentioned last time that really, to me, is somewhere that I'd, I'd love to just hear what it's like on the ground in a situation like that. What, what was what were you doing there in the first place? And which organisation were you with? And, and yeah, I mean, can you can you summarise the, the experience somewhat? Oh, I feel possible? like oh my gosh, summarise experience. It is intense, exhausting, um, heartbreaking, resilience of the people that live there. So so many words I can't think of to even to describe it right now, but it's like I think, oh, gosh, the sense of community over there is, is huge, the, the, what community is, um, and I think that's one of their resilience factors when it comes to the people in Sudan and Darfur in particular, their ability to to be resilient and just adapt and continue to live um, in these horrible circumstances. I actually saw, I think, on the news the other day, the situation pretty much hasn't changed, still in the same situation that it was. 
it's got to be going on what maybe 15 20 years and children are born into this now and this is their lifestyle this is all they know you know refugee camps internally displaced people living in tents or little huts with not access to you know what we have every day electricity water really good nutrition food education but you know it is also hard as it was to work there the resilience and the inspiration that these people give you it was hard to leave as well even though I wanted to come home and have a shower (laughs) it was really it was hard to leave because you learn you become a part of that community 100% yeah I mean that's that's a really amazing thing how do you end up leaving I mean what is it just as you say it's it's your your time there is scheduled to end and then you're on Next thing you know, you're on flights and it's kind of a, a, a behemoth of the organisation. Are you, were you working for the UN or...? or Different international organisations at that point. So it's you do have a contact period, so like six months or 12 months or 18 months. You can always extend yeah. if you want to as well and that you always kind of want to extend to some point, but there's always a point where you know you've got to go some, at some place. I think it's harder once you've done the working emergency response work um, it's harder to come home because, and we, I mean, I used to only come home for once a week, once a year for one week because it was just too hard to come home because, you know, third world problems were so insignificant and I would come home, do all my medical checks that I had to do, buy my year supply of hair products and get out. <laughs> the last time I was in Sydney was the better for me mentally because, you know, that became my norm, you know, living overseas in this emergency zones then the life in mm. Australia. And how, how do you reconcile yourself to to that? I and mean, you mentioned it, third world problems, and we always joke about first world problems. Yeah, my cleaner didn't turn up this week, first world problems. But, I mean, they're real problems for us. But, how, I mean, how do you continue? Do you have a struggle with that on a on a daily, weekly basis to, to kind of not apply some of the, the hardships and the trauma that you've seen? Is, 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 there, is there an approach you've got? Uh, therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I have a therapist. <laughs> you have um, a therapist. <laughs> well, fair enough. <laughs> no, and so is, the cycle continues. Yeah, is that right? <laughs> um, I am. Um, no, it, it is definitely really, really hard to come home. A huge learning again, knowing that, you know, not that the water is endless, but, you know, I didn't need to recycle the water from my water bottle in the kettle every day because it upset my flatmate because her tea started to taste like plastic. But little things like that. <laughs> You know, just have to relearn to adapt. When people hear what you do, they're very curious and they want to hear all the the stories that you don't want to talk about because, you know, it is triggering for you. And people really don't really understand. The news doesn't portray it accurately and it's not really on the news unless maybe you watch SBS News or ABC News and even then it's not on it. No, no. And it's interesting you say that because when I talk to people about being a provider in the NDIS, I always get people who want to immediately talk about the fraud or the, you know, payment for sex workers or the, the negative things. And in fact, a local radio presenter here in Southern Highlands in Barrel, I, I offered to come onto his show and talk about all the good things about the NDIS and I never received a call. Back. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really, because, you know, I guess it's probably not not sufficiently clickbaity enough to to get some interest, but I'm interested in you. You mentioned it in your in your, in your chat about when you were in Sudan. Some of the inspirational people, 
are, is there opportunities to, to to track progress of inspirational people? Or is it just not really that sort of way? Or you you know what you've seen is more more nuances, more granular, just sort of something someone you saw the incidences you've seen of family life or res- resilience or you know, making the best of bad situations. What? How do you? I mean, I'd love to hear more about that to be honest with you than than any of the, the bad stuff that you've seen. It's. I mean, to track the families, like I haven't. I'm not in contact with any of the families. I am still in contact through Facebook. <laughs> um, some of the you know national team that we had on the ground there. So, but there's limited um, you know language as well. But you know, I see photos yeah. now and then that they post up. So some of them are doing really well, which is good to hear and see. But um, you can't. You don't really get to track a lot of the scenario. You know the kids themselves that you worked with, and they, you know, they're in, internally displaced people, so they probably move around camps as well. And yeah, you know, like keeping a track of them from a you know UNHCR perspective is hard, let alone from a yeah. worker part of from a personal perspective, just to to keep in touch. Yeah. And so you come back to Sydney. You were in Western Sydney. You told me a very interesting story about providing care for some individuals uh, and then being capped at a certain number of hours per, per for the individual, which I guess is that institutionalised uh, health provision or provision of uh, of support for an individual in the system in, in Australia, and, and you, you rebelled against that? I can't work for the government. No, I can't. <laughs> I have to do it my way. <laughs> I, just, I don't agree that, you know, you can work with a family in trauma and intense trauma and that it's going to be okay in 10 sessions or 12 sessions. It just takes 10 or 12 sessions for them to actually build rapport and then start the trust to be able to have any form of, I don't know, like safety in the work that you do. And and I feel like you can't you can't cap it on that. And that's when I realised that I had to go out and do it my way. Not that my way is always the right way, but it was the, the way that, you know, sits best with me, resonates with me. Yeah, sure. And for me, that but that brings, and for for me, that brings up something that's a kind of a theoretical debate as to how do we provide enough support for all of the individuals that need it? Do you deep dive into a few people and they're the lucky ones? Do you spread yourself thinly, which I assume is what the government's pr- pr- tr- trying to do with their concept of the ten hours or twelve hours, with limited amount of resources to 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 be enabled to enable individuals like all companies and organizations like yours to to support people where, where do you see this solution is what what is the what is the solution i feel like to stay small in the organization like it is as a very small organization that i have and that keeps with the quality of work and the only time we really expand is when we find someone that fits right with us and then they do the same quality of work that we can we do and we can supervise to make sure that our quality stays but it's interesting when you were saying, you know, like the fraud in the NDIS, I think on the flip side of that, you know, we get given this block and we have to work in this line item and get this many hours. It's never that many hours. The amount of hours you work for free for these families is, you know, just as much as what we charge. So there's two two flips to every coin. So. Mm. That's wonderful that, that you are, are able and, and your team, I'm presuming, go the extra mile. But as you say, that 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 sustainability model or financially robust model, you're you're self-funded, I'm assuming, or you you've been funded by by you know, it's it's your business. 
uh, to your your organization. You set up Treehouse, was it in 2014? Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what Treehouse is? <laughs> you're, you're looking confused. <laughs> it says so on your bio. Well, I'm going to quote, quote you on your bio. <laughs> Someone else wrote it for me, so they must be right. Right. Whatever LinkedIn tells uh, us, right, isn't it? Then. <laughs> yeah, whatever it says in the social sphere. Um, so tell me a little bit more, though, please, about uh, about Treehouse Innovative Families. So I, before Treehouse, I had Camp Fire, which now still runs, but it runs by a lady in Victoria. We handed it over to her because we couldn't do both. And it was for a therapeutic camps for kids in foster care during the school holidays. And one day we were driving home from the camps and a young girl held my hand the whole way home and she didn't want to go home. And she was living in the kind of boarding houses for kids that don't have a family. And I remember thinking, why can't we just create families for these kids? Like if we, if there are not enough foster families out there, let's just build a family. So we took on the concept that we could get live-in paid workers and maybe they won't be a mum and dad role, but they could be a big sister role or the auntie role. And then we kind of build the, the family around the kid and they all fill in the role. So you've got a maybe a big sister or a big brother and an auntie or maybe a grandma in there or, and they kind of build, you know, we create the family for them that they're missing. Wow. So yeah, wow. I mean, that's that's quite unbelievable. So you you uh, you you came up with the concept of basically replicating the family model in place of. So if you in the normal course of actions, an individual, a, a child that's in the system, would be waiting for a foster parent or a, or a temporary parent in the classic sense of you know mum mm. or dad or two mums, two dads. Uh, wherever it may be so then that would be in the foster system and you what you've created is this a first of its kind I mean I, I've not heard of anybody else replicating this model <laughs> you're shaking your head like you're not sure, not sure. Um, there's some other models that are similar like the professional carer model out there but I'm not sure well and so so that was the first point how long did it take from that drive home uh, with the young lady to setting something up in the first families I think we started on Monday with my concept. <laughs> Go home Friday and started a, started writing the philosophy on Monday. I mean, it took I think three years to get accredited with the OCG, the um, Office of the Children's Guardian. That that was a process. That was a big process. But we're fully accredited now, which is amazing. And we just got to keep up that standard to keep the accreditation. We are not one of the main funded bodies under. Um, Department of uh, Community and Justice, um, like Life Without Barriers. Um, oh, there's some other really big players that, you know, they have big funding. Players. But we, we just, you know, a small little player that catches a few sort of kids that can't get into the big, can't get a funded bed under the program. So we've got, I think, maybe four or five houses currently across New South Wales and, you know, the kids love it. So we have some really good um, outcomes, which is great. They normally do get moved on after a period of time to a large organisation, but during the time they've had with us, they've created memories, they've learned to have healthy attachments, which means they can then go on and do it in another context, another environment, which is a goal. Well, uh, so what you've just said there, why, why do they get moved on? Uh, you know, it seems like, you, you know, you're having all the success with them. They are, as you say, developing healthy attachments. They, they, they looked after an innovative approach. It may not be, you know, mainstream or, or traditionally. I'm just curious, why would they be? Why do they get moved on? <laughs> why would they be moved on? 
because the government has already allocated a certain amount of funds to the big organisations that do it. And so when a bed becomes available, they call it funded beds, then the children get moved into there. And we, we just, you know, whilst those beds become available, we're just kind of the organisation that can have some of the children. Right. So it's all about money. Wow. It's all political. It's all about money. Well, it just, I mean, what it just seems like, you know, just as people will be or the, the, the children are on that trajectory, that positive trajectory towards, as you say, building healthy attachments, then they are moved away from, from you for that stability and, and taken and put into an organization which may not be replicating some of those positive behaviors or positive reaffirmations that you would have done. Mm. And I mean, I guess the risk is that there would be some recess or some other, you know, some, some concern around, you know, that, that trust would have been stripped away again, but well, I mean, I'm sure you've got plenty of amazing stories of of, of the individuals that you've helped. Uh, you've moved into the NDIS with, um, and I'm going to ask you a very broad here question. Your view on the NDIS? I think it's brilliant the service that we offer people with disabilities and vulnerability in Australia. I feel like that the political side of it's probably a little bit um, <laughs> questionable. But I think for what it provides the people with disabilities and vulnerabilities, it is amazing to see them out in community more. It's it's watching their growth individually. I see more success because, you know, they've for so long just been stuck in groups or group programs or not having their individual needs met. But, it, you know, I feel very much a lot of the clients we work with are, are doing really well um, and they're out there and having a quality of life that they deserve to have. So I like being very yep. No, no. We look as I said. Uh, as I said to the radio presenter, if you ever want me to talk about the good news stories, the NDIS, like I've got a bucket load mm. of them. You know, let me tell you about, about how positive we are about it. We we think that it's an amazing, you know, exercise. In, you know, in, in transformative. You know, what should be social norms? You know, mm. it should just be the norm. We, we've demonstrated that. You know, both from an internal perspective and external perspective, there should be no no challenges to. To, to working with and hiring and, and in, as you say, seeing people in society, seeing people in the community. That's, that's what we want. As you said, the previous model where there were no access to community, where they were in group homes and, and not, not, uh, not, not provided with sufficient supports to get out into the community, that, that's, where, that's where we need to look at ourselves as a society and think there's something wrong with that. When I spoke to Joe McIntyre, who I think is – Again, one of the just most amazing people in the NDIS space, and we're very lucky to have her on board. I asked her to explain to me what she thought the difference was between other organisations and yourself. Okay. <laughs> she mentioned a couple of things, and I, I thought I'd just mention them to you. So it's always nice to have some feedback. She she mentioned that the, the one of the major differences, the empathy that she feels is pervasive across you and and everybody in your organisation, is incredibly genuine and incredibly strong. And and what you mentioned there about you know you you're doubling down on time spent with individuals post funded supports you know you're doing a lot of stuff off your own back or off your own coin. She mentioned that that's something that you know really genuinely comes across. And, and she said something that uh, you may or may not. She said you're very solution focused, and I'd just like to dive into that if we could. What, what does that mean to you when I say very solution focused? I never thought of it like that. I guess when you have a problem, you've just got to figure it out, right? And we can just sit there and twiddle your thumbs and hope it solves itself. You've got to find the answer. You've got to think creative outside of the box. Mm. You know. She mentioned that there was never any uh, any focus on problems. There was always a focus on solutions. 
from from the team. You're you're nodding like that's a new thing. Don't to you, that's, oh, no, that's great. Thing. It's good to hear. My glass is full. That's not half full. <laughs> <laughs> we we've talked about you know some of the people you fix and some of the sorry but not some people you fix. Some people you assist. One of the interesting stats when I originally met with your colleague, Will, uh, he mentioned the statistics around children that are supported on a daily basis in New South Wales. And I don't have them to hand, and I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. He mentioned something like, he said something about 600 or so children sleeping in supported accommodation on a nightly basis in New South Wales. I don't know if that figure is a correct one, but it seemed to me to be a lot. Mm, probably but yeah sound it feels high but I wouldn't be surprised if it was correct there's a lot I think at one point the statistic there was like over 200 kids a night in a motel room because we couldn't even get them a placement at one point as a few years back that stat so and so how, how are children ending up in motel rooms because uh, there's no again I know I, I don't yeah there's no placements for them no foster care families there's no funded beds available and, and it's an emergency situation so if they've been removed that afternoon or that evening, then that could be just, you know, where they stay until more permanent location can be provided. And is this next step for those individuals to come to, to, to your organisation or is there to go to the funded beds that you either mentioned or. with the large organisations? Yeah, either or. It depends what becomes available in the area because you kind of want to keep the, the kids close to school, close to, you know, their friends. You don't want to, you know, completely change their and move them across the state. You want them to be, you know, especially if they're, you know, in the local football team, you want them to be able to still play in the local football team on Saturday. Like, you know, things that are yeah. normal and that bring them that sense of belonging, you want to make sure that that can stay as much as possible. All right. Yeah, very complex. If you had an endless pot of gold, what would your magic wand be waved at? Endless ever? Oh, God. It's one of those questions. <laughs> we would have more... More housing for vulnerable kids and people with disabilities. Housing is a big issue. Get them. Everyone needs a home. Everyone needs a place to call home. Well, uh, my father has uh, written a book called Climbing Maslow's Pyramid, and I think that that's probably, as you say, it addresses some of those fundamentals, isn't it? The uh, the top of the pyramid: food, clothing, shelter. Mm. As you say, uh, so that certainly would would be a huge benefit. That would be fantastic. We were working on a project with uh, Adelaide University at the moment with regards to some uh, assessment software for ILO, which we're excited to be looking at to make the process of getting individualized living options easier for people with disability or people with an NDIS plan. So we'll keep you posted on that one. In the Northern Rivers, there's no housing up here. Well, I mean, uh, having recently been on a trip to Byron Bay, it's because everyone's so expensive. Oh. <laughs> Although I did, um, uh, we did see some innovative housing approaches. Uh, I think there was one in in Byron itself, but uh, that Joe had, had introduced us to, and and I know that there's. Uh, we talked to uh, Nathan from Mojo Surf, and he mentioned that there was a, a new development in Coffs Harbour as well. But I, I hear you. We we know that you know, even just on the SDA side of things, there are thousands of beds that are needed. And 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 that's just you know in the in the in the high physical and you know needs. So we, we know that there is definitely a shortage. Debbie Selden, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really lovely chatting to you. I'm going to let you go. I know you're extremely busy. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us on the podcast today, Rocks on the People. And uh, we truly value um, the opportunity to talk to someone like yourself. 
we will put some links to Treehouse, Innovative Families and Ladybug Consulting. I know that you're probably at capacity anyway, but uh, we think it's an amazing thing that you do. As I said, all of our uh, team think that, uh, you know, you're at the top of the tree there and we, we love working with you. So thank you very much, Debbie Seldon. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Rock Solid People. For more interviews, stay tuned.